Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to another installment of the Historical Society of the New York Courts podcast, chatting with the authors of Judicial Notice. I'm David Goodwin, a trustee of the Society and an editor of Judicial Notice, our periodical of New York legal history, and in my spare time, a lawyer in New York City. We're recording this episode on June 22nd, 2021, making this our first post-vaccine installment of the podcast. It may surprise you, but it was not until 1830 that a law school graduate joined the United States Supreme Court. That was Henry Baldwin, who had studied at the Litchfield Law School in Connecticut. Even the great justices, like John Marshall and Joseph Story, had instead read law as clerks in law offices. The final Supreme Court justice who had not attended a law school at all was James F. Burns, who was appointed in 1941 and, of course, resigned after only 15 months on the bench. It is true that law schools have only dominated legal education for the past 100 years or so. But as today's guest will explain, the Litchfield Law School, Justice Henry Baldwin's school, paved the way for Harvard, Yale, Columbia, and other leading law schools of today. Paul DeForest Hicks is the author of The Litchfield Law School, Guiding the New Nation, and contributed a piece on Litchfield to issue 16 of Judicial Notice. Opening in 1784, Litchfield Law School was among the first in the United States, and even though it was located in Connecticut, it had an outsized influence on the bench and bar of the nascent state of New York, long before institutional legal education was a given. Mr. Hicks, welcome to the podcast. Would you mind telling us a little bit about yourself and your background? Absolutely, thank you. I graduated from Princeton, and after Harvard Law School, I practiced law in Denver, Colorado for a five-year period before returning to my native New York, where I joined J.P. Morgan. Over more than 30 years there, I worked in a variety of areas using my legal background frequently. In retirement, which started in, if you can believe it, 1997. Belated congratulations. I started a third career as a writer. My first book was a biography of an ancestor, Joseph Henry Lumpkin, who was the first chief justice of the Georgia Supreme Court. That, of course, is the state of Georgia. The next was a biography of John E. Parsons, an eminent lawyer in New York City during the Gilded Age and the founder of the New York City Bar Association. The third published book is about the Litchfield Law School, which we're here for. For those listeners who haven't yet read my piece in Judicial Notice, I'll give a brief sketch of what Litchfield was and how it came into being. A graduate of Princeton named Tapping Reeves studied law in Hartford, Connecticut with a noted lawyer, married the sister of Aaron Burr, and moved to Litchfield, Connecticut to practice law in 1773. To supplement his income from his practice, he taught what was called law clerks or apprentices in his office, starting with his brother-in-law, Aaron Burr. By 1784, his reputation as a teacher had attracted so many students that he built a building next to his home in Litchfield in which he held lectures. Although the law school was not affiliated with the college and did not grant degrees, it educated upwards of 1,200 students over its nearly 50 years, ending in 1833. 
Given that sketch, Mr. Hicks, and the background you mentioned earlier, why Litchfield? What drew you to this topic? Well, some years ago, I discovered that another ancestor named Stephen Upson had gone to the Litchfield Law School for a year after graduating from Yale in 1803. If you go to the lovely town of Litchfield in the northwestern part of Connecticut, you will find a museum that is a replica of the law school. It is part of the Litchfield Historical Society, which has also created an excellent database online with detailed information about its alumni. So that's what first sparked my interest. My ancestor and then my visit, well, actually it was my visit to Litchfield, which I recommend to everyone. It's a beautiful place. New England town in northwest quarter of Connecticut. And because I then discovered that my ancestor Stephen Upson was there, um, it just stuck with me for 20 or more years before I started the book. So it sounds like uh, Litchfield was also a pioneer of having a very good alumni association as well, which is uh, something that I think they might have uh, paved the way for um, also in the rest of legal education. So contextualizing this a little bit, you mentioned earlier that Litchfield wasn't associated with another school. It didn't grant degrees. So what then was legal education like in the late 18th and early 19th centuries? And what role did it actually serve in helping people get admitted to the profession of practicing law? Let's go back probably to, I think, 17... 77, when the College of William and Mary established the first professorship chair in law at the college. And that makes them clearly the first law school, quotes around law school, in the U.S. They were a college, and there is a line that we'll talk about later of the colleges or university-affiliated law schools. There's another line that begins with the Litchfield Law School, which is a proprietary law school, not affiliated with the university or college, doesn't grant degrees, but is pioneered by a man named Tapping Reeve at the Litchfield Law School. And at the Litchfield Law School, students took careful notes, which they transcribed into leather-bound notebooks covering mainly private legal topics. Many of those notebooks have been preserved, and those that are in the collections of Yale, Harvard, and the Litchfield Historical Society are accessible online. They are not digitized yet, but for those who are interested in the early development of the legal education, they are a great source. Clarify this a little bit for me. So Litchfield would educate people, but then they would still do an apprenticeship in law offices. Was that still a requirement in a lot of places of being admitted? Absolutely. But let me go back a bit and give you more of a flavor of what the students at Litchfield Law School studied. And Remember that it started in 1784. So its, its principal curriculum was based 
heavily on Blackstone's commentaries of the common law. And they certainly got a great deal of practical experience by participating in what we're called and are still current in law schools around the country, moot courts. Moot courts in those days um, were governed by a judge who was first a student, but later was one of the two principal leaders at the law school. And they also attended trials and appellate hearings at the circuit court in Litchfield. So they had those two resources. Uh, they had the, or three, they had the lectures based on Blackstone. They had boot courts. They had the ability to attend the nearby court proceedings in Litchfield. And when they finished their course, a certificate signed by Reeve was enough for a Litchfield alumnus to gain admission to the bar of many states after being examined by the court that had jurisdiction where they were going to practice. So even though they weren't granting degrees, that certification was often enough. Absolutely. And Litchfield had acquired a national reputation. We'll talk a bit more about that later. So it wasn't just in Connecticut and New England that the reputation of the Litchfield Law School carried so much weight, but gradually across the expanding number of states in the Union. So on that topic, because I I think it's absolutely fascinating, you write that Litchfield had a national perspective on legal education, not focusing on state-specific laws and doctrines, and also that it tried to attract a, I think the phrase was geographically diverse student body, which, you know, means something different in the 18th and 19th centuries than it does now. But how did that work at the time? You know, how did Litchfield get its name out there and attract students to its campus and what even was a national legal perspective at that time in its history? Well, there were many, many forces at at work in, of course, the end of the 18th century, early 19th century, including an exodus from Connecticut and other parts of New England into first New York and then further west and south, driven by economic considerations and other factors, including the poor farming land in, in New England. It re-adopted a national perspective in order to, in his views, Americanize the common law and to attract a student body from various parts of the country. In 1800, Litchfield had alumni from six states outside of Connecticut, And the number of states where alumni came from or settled continued to grow. Amazingly, more than 25% of all the students came from the southern states. But New York sent the second largest number of students after Connecticut. So on that topic, um, and I think one of the things that connects this to New York and to the mission of the Historical Society in general is that although it was located in Connecticut, um, it had such a big impact on the bench and bar of New York. Could you talk about some of the biggest luminaries that we might think of that came from Litchfield? Absolutely. Well, let's you know start in New York 
an early alumnus, Nathan Sanford, was chancellor of New York from 1823 to 1826 when that position or that role of chancellor was the state's highest judicial office. Following adoption of the Constitution in 1846 in New York, the chief judges of the new Court of Appeals became the state's highest judicial officers, one of whom was a Litchfield alumnus named Ward E. Hunt. He was a lifelong resident of Utica, New York. He graduated from Union College with honors in 1828. After studying at Litchfield in 1830, he returned to Utica where he was admitted to the bar in 1831. He was elected as a judge of the Court of Appeals in 1865 and became the chief judge three years later. In the autumn of 1872, President Grant nominated him as an associate justice of the US Supreme Court and he took his seat in January, 1873. Because of a series of illnesses, Hunt's active participation on the Supreme Court lasted less than 10 years. The general view is that his tenure on the court did not achieve the potential forecast by the New York Times when he was nominated, which was, quote, no appointment which President Grant has made has been based upon stronger recommendations than that of Judge Ward Hunt to the Supreme Court of the US. We all have our ups and downs. Absolutely. And there was Lewis B. Woodruff, a graduate of Yale, who was a contemporary of Ward Hunt at the Litchfield Law School in 1830. A leading lawyer in New York City for many years, he served as a trial judge before being appointed to the Court of Appeals in 1868, the very same year that Hunt became the chief judge. In 1869, President Grant nominated Woodruff to the newly organized United States Court of Appeals for the Second Circuit. That court, as it does today, decided appeals from the United States District Courts in Connecticut, New York, and Vermont. Woodruff was sworn in as a federal judge in 1870 and won high praise during his six-year tenure on that court for his mastery of the rules of federal procedure and the special fields of admiralty, patent, and revenue laws. So one uh, Litchfield alum in particular that you mentioned caught my attention, as I imagine it would many. Uh, it was a Litchfield alum who served as an ex officio judge in the New York Court of Appeals, uh, one named Augustus Cincinnatus Hand. And I saw that name and thought, I wonder. And it turns out from our previous discussion that I wondered right. Who was this particular Mr. Hand? Well, He's one of my favorites, Augustus Cincinnatus Hand. What a wonderful name. Attended Litchfield Law School and held a number of public offices in New York State, serving as Essex County surrogates in the 1830s and state senator in the 1840s. During his term as a state Supreme Court justice, he was appointed to a seat on the Court of Appeals in 1855. Now, what makes him special, in my opinion, is that his son, Samuel Hand, also served on the New York Court of Appeals in 1878. It is said also, and this is my most significant opinion, 
it is said that the opinions of his grandson, Federal District Court Learned Hand, have been cited by the U.S. Supreme Court more than any other judges. So that's quite a dynasty. I mean, there are lots of others, um, at, you know, and if we have a little more time at the end, I can add others, but mm -hmm. those are some of the highlights. Uh, there are indeed, and I think to, to think that the Hand Dynasty began with Litchfield Law School would be enough to enshrine the school's place in history without anything else. Um, you also mentioned, though, and we never miss an opportunity, given as this is technically a podcast to uh, help plug books, that Litchfield has a major connection to the Lemon Slave case, which is actually the subject both of a recent Historical Society video narrated by none other than James Earl Jones, and also the subject of an upcoming book by our very own Judge Al Rosenblatt. Can you tell us a little bit about Litchfield's role in the Lemon Slave case and also give a brief background on what that case was for uh, those who are not aware of it? Oh, absolutely. Litchfield alumnus Elijah Payne Jr. Is a, deserves special men, mention, in my opinion. He, his decision as a judge of the Superior Court in the Lemon Slave case made him a hero in the North and a villain in the South. I was only made aware of how much of a villain because I'm doing research for another book about legal education in the South. So that's how I came across how much of an evil guy Elijah Payne was before um, the Civil War. And anyway, in 1852, a Virginia family named Lemon, that's a double M-O-N, traveled to New York City with their eight slaves. Can you imagine coming to New York City with eight slaves? A freed American tried to emancipate the slaves by filing a petition with Judge Payne, who ruled that the Lemon slaves were entitled to their freedom under New York law, which, of course, was correct. He also held that the Fugitive Slave Act, and the, remember the connection with this, this is 1852, and the Fugitive Slave Act, I think, was 1850. Anyway, it was a major compromise um, at the federal level. So he also held that the Fugitive Slave Act did not apply because they were not fugitives. They had been brought willingly and peacefully into New York State. The case went through two appeals in New York State and was finally decided in 1860. Remember, it started in 1852 by the Court of Appeals in a vote of five to three. Isn't that fascinating that it was a five to three vote? And anyway, it affirmed Judge Payne's decision. So that's, I can't wait to read Judge Rosenblatt's book. What a remarkable topic, too, on the, you know, three days after the, uh, excuse me, two days after the first federally recognized Juneteenth. So really just a remarkable topic. And I also look forward to Judge Rosenblatt's book. You describe how Litchfield was, in the end, a victim of its own success. So how did the era of the Litchfield Law School come to a close? Well, Tapping Reeve retired in 1820. Remember, the official date for the opening of the Litchfield Law School was 1784 when he built that separate building. 
although you could date it to 1784 when he took Aaron Burr in as his first law student. Anyway, 1784 was the beginning. So in 1820, at the age of 76, he finally, because of health reasons, decided to retire. The law school continued for another 13 years to 1833 under the leadership of James Gould, a brilliant Litchfield alumnus who had been Reeves' partner since 1798. Unfortunately, like many partnerships, they had no plan for management succession. Even if Gould had found a successor to uh, join him sometime after Reeves retired in 1820, the law school would have required major changes in order to compete successfully with several new university-affiliated law schools, especially the ones founded at Harvard in 1817, Yale in 1824, and Virginia in 1826. Its remote location in Northwest Connecticut and lack of a university affiliation were also competitive disadvantages. So looking then sort of in the context of history, what role do you think Litchfield ultimately played in defining legal education and the law profession of the United States? A recent history of Harvard Law School, which is my alma mater, says in retrospect, both Harvard and Yale have envied Litchfield's success and wish to claim it as their ancestor. Although the teaching method developed by Reeve and Gould eventually became outmoded, it represented a major improvement over the traditional apprenticeship or clerkship model and paved the way for further innovations in legal education. In view of its influence on the course of American jurisprudence, as well as the significant achievements of its distinguished alumni, the Litchfield Law School deserves greater recognition, in my opinion, for its important role in the history of the early republic. Before we go into sort of my closing speech, Mr. Hicks, do you think there's anything we should discuss, any topics we didn't hit that you think we should, any other alums that you might want to mention? We were talking about Henry Baldwin, a Litchfield mm-hmm. alumnus who was the... the First of the Litchfield, there were three Litchfield alumni who served on the U.S. Supreme Court. And and Henry Baldwin had moved from his native Connecticut um, to Pennsylvania and then was appointed by President Jackson to the U.S. Supreme Court. In addition... There was Levi Woodbury, who played many roles in the Jackson administrations. And and he, a a resident of New Hampshire, also was appointed to the U.S. Supreme Court. And and then, as we talked about, Ward Hunt. Now, you know, some made their mark in fields outside of the law, such as George Catlin, the great painter of the West, who said that he couldn't get rid of his law school notebooks quick enough and take <laughs> up 
pick up his paintbrushes. Then there was also a man named James Gore King, one of many of the Litchfield alumni who went into banking and finance. But the reason I mention King is that he was the banker who was the principal underwriter of the Erie Canal bonds. And there's some indication that if he had not been so clever and so persuasive, that the Erie Canal may never have been completed. But then finally, I mentioned as a non-lawyer, although he was a lawyer for a while, Hor- Horace Mann, the, oh, great, really? the great educator, who also served in the U.S. Senate. Now, I mean, they're fascinating people. There was a, um, a student at the law school in the early 1800s who has been identified by Yale as probably the first Jewish alumnus, but he was also the first African-American from South Carolina. And I'm sorry, I can't come up with his name at the moment. But um, so he went from Yale to the Litchfield Law School and, and then to New York, did not have a great happy ending. But anyway, all kinds of fascinating people. And I think it speaks a lot to the school's prominence and its ability to draw the kind of diverse student body that you mentioned earlier. The breadth from painters to educators that you mentioned would not have been possible unless it had an extraordinarily strong reputation. Right. You you and I had talked earlier about how did Reeve and Gould educate in that early period with such persuasive logic about the teaching of law, especially because they were doing it mainly through lectures mm-hmm. in an era when there weren't very many legal treatises. In fact, Rees published a treatise on domestic relations in about 1815, 16, and Gould published a treatise on pleading. But it wasn't until the 1820s and 1830s that treatises began to proliferate mm-hmm. and change the whole dynamics of teaching in law schools. So they got away, and that's why you know, one of the reasons that Litchfield fell by the wayside is that the new law schools, Harvard and Yale, etc., could basically incorporate these treatises as well as reports on the highest court reports from various states. Connecticut was the first state to publish reports of its Supreme Court on which both Reeve and Gould served. So lots of things going on. And I think we've discussed in the past how a lot of those reporters took a very long time to come into modern form. Even the Supreme Court decisions were not reported the same way then that they are now. Before we draw to a close, I want to thank you so much, Mr. Hicks, for taking the time to speak with us. It's been an extraordinarily informative discussion, and I highly encourage everyone listening who hasn't already to check out Mr. Hicks's article in Issue 16 of Judicial Notice, which is out right now. And read my book. And read, and of course, that is very important, read the book, whose title I'm going to say again, just for emphasis, it is called The Litchfield Law School, Guiding the New Nation. And uh, I imagine it's available wherever fine books are sold, such as on Amazon.com and other places. Meanwhile, speaking of enjoying good books, 
If you, the listener, enjoyed this podcast and you'd like to learn more about Judicial Notice and the Historical Society more broadly, I encourage you to visit us on our website at history.nycourts.gov and to browse the other podcasts, videos, events, and so on on this channel. The Society does a lot of interesting and important work that is well worth your time, ranging from preservation of historical records to highlighting interesting and unique facets of New York State's legal history. I thank you so much for listening. Stay safe, stay well, until next time.